0: See what I was saying about those section leaders? Our quote this week comes from that person I was talking about, uh, that sixth-century French pastor, Caesarius of Arlais. And he believed that it was the job of pastors to graze in the fields of scripture, nourishing themselves on the rich teachings in order to feed their flocks. Likewise, it is also, he thought, important for the flock to occasionally, to, to pester their pastors like a, a cow has to pester its mother in order to get fed. And so today, today is that day to pester the pastor. And I want to, those, to answer those questions that people have asked, and I will tell you, last Sunday I only had a handful of them, and then they kind of exploded midweek. So... Um, Thank you for that. That's that's wonderful. And I just uh, thank you for everybody who responded on Facebook or email or text, all of that. And I'm going to do my best to respond. So our first question today is, how do we know God is real? I believe that he is, but I don't know it for sure. So this is the, the most basic tenet of faith. The most basic tenet of faith is is that, that there is something more. Something more than ourselves or what we experience. It's just this faith that there is something greater. Now, you take it beyond that, pretty much no two people will exactly agree. And the further you go out with what people believe, we all believe different things. But over the centuries, people have sought some sort of proof—just something empirical, a proof of God, some way of just absolutely knowing that God is real. Now, these um, so there's a there's a form of logical proof. It's called an ontological argument, and probably the most famous one was one that was come came up with in the 12th century by uh, a man named Ams, uh, Anselm. Sorry, um, and he. It's an idea that has been discussed every, ever since. Now, it's a whole logic proof. So those of you who took formal logic, you know about a logic proof. But I'm going to tell you just the opening statement of it. God is a being than which none greater can be imagined. That was the, the beginning statement. And he would go on to logically prove then that God exists. However, to me, that that, that is kind of like the question, if a tree falls in the forest and there is no one to hear it, does it make a sound? How many would say, yes? How many say, no? Okay. The sound waves themselves are not dependent on humans to exist. God is not dependent on humans to exist, and, From my perspective, the truth is that there is absolutely no way to prove God, unless you imagine a God that is so small that you can. Each one of us, we just like we were talking with the kids, each one of us, we imagine God a little bit differently. But we all fall into the kind, of these, kind of these three main models of thinking. And we've talked about these before, but it's, it's been a while. And um, so I won't give you the whole teaching now, but you, you have people out there who are your, your deists and your theists. And they believe in God in a certain way. And then you have pantheists, where God and nature are sort of one and the same. And then you have your panentheists, and there are different types of those too, which believe that God is everything, but also more than that even. if you're a kind of more of a deist or even kind of into the pantheist, you might, might, in some ways of thinking, might be able to find evidence, scientific evidence for God with those, with those views. And those are people who might look for, say, the God particle to find evidence of God in in particle theory, or looking for something special that might've been present in the DNA of Jesus. So those are, that's a move that kind of a theist or a pantheist view, they might kind of say, yeah, that's possible from our perspective. However, for panentheists like me, that wouldn't work. And so I just trust that God exists. I choose faith. And from that trust, I experience God working around me but I also recognize that God is transcendent too. God is beyond time and space, beyond my imagination, far from being a being. Some people will think of God as an event, an unfolding event, that God is not static and fixed. You you heard some of our kids that were kind of reflecting that view up here today. So what about you? What is your God like? How do you account for all the suffering in the world? Is God responsible? those, Those are contingent questions. Is God the source of morality or is God beyond notions like that? And how do you come to know God? Do you come to know God through, is it exclusively through scripture Is it through relationships? Is it both? Through nature? How is it that you come to know God? When it comes down to this, on this question, I I cannot prove God, but what I can do is to help guide you on your path to understanding God for yourself, because that matters. That's the promise that I made to our confirmation class when we started a couple weeks. But I will always be willing to share my faith and my experience as well, that, I, that how I understand God's call and why the way, that, the way of Christ Jesus guides my life. I will always be open to telling you what that means to me. Question two. I love this one. Where did Cain's wife come from? So do do you, okay, I love this question. Anybody here are fans of the series Lost? Okay, a few, all right. So the question is about the Others. The Bible, in our, in our scriptures, we have two creation stories that are in our Bible. One came from the, the southern, southern kingdom of Judah, and the other story came from the northern kingdom of Israel, which were two Israelite king- kingdoms. And so the, oh, the northern kingdom of Israel, when you hear about those Samaritans in scripture, that's them. They're the northern folks. That's what they were labeled after the kingdom, after the kingdom fell. And so both of these were put together and into kind of, into the same book, into into Genesis. And then um, the one that we get from the southern kingdom, Judah, that one includes the story of the Garden of Eden. So now after being forced to leave the the, the garden, the Adam and the Eve, and in Eve, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And after killing Abel, Cain is forced into exile and marries. And so that's why the question, who does he marry? Okay, any ideas out there? If you're on the chat too, throw it in the chat. I'll look at those later too. But where, uh, any ideas? If they are the only people on earth, who are these others? Others? Some people will say, they'll say it's like, this is some of Cain's nieces and nephews. Okay, you know, maybe it's not in the story, but there you you go. Other tribes of humans. Or does this show that, does this story intentionally, because I do not think that this is some sort of a textual mistake. This was not a, a, a mistake. There are places in scripture where there were clearly editorial problems. Go to the book of Noah. They'll jump out at you there. But in this story, that's not what's going on. This, show, this story to me that shows that there are always others out there because we live our own lives, and the drama of our lives is what we experience. But there are billions of other dramas going on all over the world. I was at the Billy Joel concert last night, and I was thinking about this. I was looking at all the people who were gathered, gathered there. Every one of them, every one of us, has a different story of why we would go to a Billy Joel concert when it's 100 degrees out. All of us have a story of, of, of his impact on us that we showed up at that, at that concert. And that all of those stories matter. And you could spend a lifetime just learning all of those stories, just the people who were in Arrowhead. There are always other stories around us. I don't, for me, I think that it's always just being aware that those stories are out there, not being ignorant of them or saying that only our story matters. And the interesting thing to me is that the revelation, the final book in the Bible, also, so there's, there's the destructive end of the world, but it refers to those others that survive, not just the ones that go into the New Jerusalem, but it refers to those others who survive and do not live in the New Jerusalem. But from beginning to end of our scriptures, there's always an acknowledgement that there's others. Question three, if a person who says he doesn't believe in God, what happens to his soul after he dies? And so I'm gonna start on this one, that this one is, the the answer on this one is way above my pay grade. I am, this is, that is way above my pay grade. But I will tell you, this is what I, what I was taught. So you can kind of go with me on this. There are spectrum. There, imagine a spectrum here. And kind of on one end, this is a whole study in theology called soteriology. And it, is, it deals with this idea of the spectrum of belief that exists of what happens to a person's soul after a person dies. Now, on one side of the spectrum, you have your, what I would call, radical exclusivists. And they tune into verses like this one from Matthew 7. It says, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will get into the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so they create conditions in their mind. This is the will of God. This is what you have to do to go to heaven after you die. And it almost always matches up with what they think of themselves anyway. That can be problematic. But on the other side of things, you have your, your radical inclusivists. And radical inclusivists say everybody goes to heaven. No, there are, there are no ifs and ors, but everybody goes to heaven after you die. You have no choice in the matter. God's kind of a tyrant on that end of the spectrum, there's no free will. All of us, in our minds when we hear the questions like this, we all imagine kind of being at different places on that spectrum. Where are you? For me, I, I personally, I, 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 fall or I fall nearer to the inclusivist end, but I'm not so radical as I think that God is a tyrant. How many of you, how many of you um, uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia when you were growing up, the C.S. Lewis books? Okay, highly influential in Aaron land. The last book, the last battle, Aslan, who is the, he's the lion who is, is Christ in that story, comes face to face with a priest of Tosh, which Tosh is essentially the Antichrist. And this priest has been out proclaiming Tosh and searching for Tosh. And he comes face to face with Aslan and he expects the lion is just going to rip him to shreds. But Aslan's response is, your entire life, you spent searching for that which was beyond. I credit all of that as searching for me. You're welcome. Come on in. And there's this tree, kind of like an arch, and the Antichrist priest walks through. That's the the scene that was highly influential on me. But we all have our answers answers to this. But there's a spectrum on that, and all of us fall at different points on that. So what's really is less interesting than my answer is, what's yours? And we have only time for one more final question today. So here it is, and this is an important one. When bad things happen to good people, how do we make sense of catastrophic events? School shootings, wildfires, terminal illness, etc. And where can we find God in all of us, in all of it? So much of what we talk about in questions like this, it's there's philosophical backgrounds, they're logical. Scriptural, but beyond all of that, beyond all of the head stuff, it is through Christ Jesus that I choose to trust. God is revealed most powerfully by what I see in him, what I experience. And Jesus saw not only the suffering and tragedies of his own time, the starvation, the the need for healing, all of that. He not only saw all of that in his own time, he himself was subjected to all of that suffering in his own crucifixion. And God did not swoop in to save him from senseless pain and death. It doesn't work that way. No matter how much sometimes I wish that it did. And I do wish it did sometimes a lot. All life, the people I love, all of you, were mortal. These bodies that we have, they fail. And all of us will die in one way or another. And the righteous they suffered just as much as the unrighteous. Jesus said as much, several times. And people, people will, we will commit acts of cruelty on one another, things that, that we might even call inhuman. And yet for as often as we do it, it seems very human. And God, God is with us in the suffering. Your suffering, all human suffering, all suffering matters. When you hurt, God hurts. And I do trust that when the suffering in this life is done, there is a better life in God. I trust that. In this life, though, I find God in those who help. Again and again. I see God in those who choose to serve, who choose to work for healing, to treat their neighbors with compassionate love always. I see God in those people who try to work to end systems of injustice that demean or would have someone starve because of an unjust system. I see God in, in, in people who work against those systems. I see God in those people who refuse to separate themselves from others, from whoever is labeled an other, and will serve with those that they disagree with, and even those people who hate them will serve them just as readily as those who love them. I see the face of God in that. In short... I see God's face in those who follow Christ's way, even if they don't label it as such. You've heard me say this again and again. The values of Jesus inclusivity, nonviolence, compassion, justice, and mercy. Core values that those who try to live humbly with those values in their life, those people show me the face of God. And it may not, it is, I, I don't believe that it is everything. There's even more. But that's the truth that saves, that's the truth I need. That is the light in this world that the darkness has not and will not overcome. And that's what I want you to know. That is what I, as your pastor, want you to know.